Alright, alright, alright. Let's get this thing started. My name is D. Better known as D Money, D Reckon, D Nice. This is my first ever in the making podcast episode. Real talk, no chaser. Just wanted to be able to put my voice out there, give my my viewpoints of being a young black man in America in these crazy times. And I'm just going to go over a couple things. There's going to be several topics of the day, maybe one topic. Maybe get some people to come on over and excuse their views of what's happening in the world. So just a little about myself. 30-something. We'll just say that we're on the other side the bad side of 30, but some people might say it's the good side. Father of three kids, two boys and a girl, working a professional job, dealing with people across this lovely nation of ours and their entitlements, and just living life the best way I can. No la vida, la vida loco. My Spanish ain't that good, but you know, it is what it is. But I feel like, you know, there, there is a they're the voice that needs to be heard like mine. We ain't out here trying to create revolutions and you know, making history. We just out here trying to make it day to day. And that's that's what my that's what my podcast is gonna be all about. I want to talk about some of the subjects that are near and dear to my heart. Um, first and foremost, one of those subjects and those topics is mental health. We're gonna to touch on that tonight. And I'm going to give you my viewpoint, my history. And if you like it, listen again. If not, then kick rocks. It's okay. You'll come back around. Because I'm cool like that. You're going to love my voice. Alright, alright. That's like I said, as far as one of the topics that are near and dear to my heart is mental health. And you know what? I'm just going to give you a little bit of backstory of my experience with mental health and my journey. My journey is unique, just like I'm pretty sure anybody else out here in this world who has dealt with mental health issues, their experience is unique by themselves. So like I said, in the intro, I'm on the other side of 30. I would like to say mentally, I'm a young 25. Don't do the math. I got kids, but don't, 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 don't try to do the math. There. Don't break out the calculators. Like I said, I'm a young 25. But my issues with mental health have gone back over 20 years. Uh, it started out when I was the young buck of age, around 13 to 14, when I started realizing that, you know what, things things just weren't the way that I wanted them to see. The viewpoints of the world just weren't right. And it seemed like, you know what, it just wasn't, um, wasn't like all the other kids out there, you know, out there in junior high, you know, trying to get out into this world. You know, happiness was one of those things, but just like it was a uh, one of those unknown figures that I was not able to obtain. And at that point in time, I didn't know what was going on. My parents didn't know what was going on. It was just me trying to figure some things out. And over a period of time, after speaking to some counselors back and forth, I was ultimately diagnosed with clinical depression. So. For those of you that are uninhibited to what clinical depression is, clinical depression is not, oh, I 
got rejected by Betty Sue for the prom and I just feel upset. The clinical person is like, you know what? Things just don't interest you anymore. The things that used to bring you joy in your life are no longer there. You stop sleeping. You stop eating. You really stop caring about life over a period of time. It's ongoing. And I know many people that have been in the same boat, they hear family members like, oh, this is a phase or just snap out of it. Clinical depression is not one of those things that you can just snap out of. There's going to be some time, there's going to be a process to it where you either have to speak to somebody, where it's psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, we may involve so far as some medicine. Lord knows I've been on my fair share. We'll touch on that in a minute. But um, my journey went from being diagnosed to talking to counselors to having to take medicines to ultimately to one of the darkest points of my life where yes I admit I had suicidal thoughts and tendencies or I did not care if I lived or died I didn't believe I was going to make it past the age of 20 now most cases some people might think because I'm African American male that that was because I lived a, I lived a stug life I was out there in the streets but uh, against my street cred I was not out there in them streets I was in, for the most part, between Modesto, California, and Dillon, South Carolina. Modesto's a little hood, Dillon's a little bit of hood, but, mm, oh no, Dillon's a little bit country and a little bit hood, depending on which part you live from. Shout out Newtown and them. But, um, no. D Money was not out there in them streets. D Money was trying to just make it through high school. But during that period of time, I self-mutilated. Some people may even know, if you know me personally, you may have seen the brands on my arm. And you may have heard the 20 different stories that I may have told about why I got them brands or how I came about them. But that's another another story for another episode. But I did the brands. I was reckless. Out here walking in the middle of the street, trying to get hit by cars. Or just really just not giving a damn. Um, to that point, I went from that to ultimately where when you say those things, especially as a young man, you don't say it lightly. You just say it as you say it and then people react to it differently. And that's the first place I realized how people react to when you say that you're suicidal. In my case, I was taken to a lovely facility. I want to say it was in Conway, South Carolina. Uh, this was my first inst- uh, institute I apologize if I didn't say it quite right, but I got put into a facility um, where well, I was there with a bunch of other young, young people going through different stages of their mental health issues. And this is another part, and I'm sorry if I paused a little bit, but this is something that has uh, dogged me for a long time. That This experience, like I said, is unique. Um, and it used to get me mad that people didn't understand when I tried to explain to them. But I had a lovely person tell me that, Derek, nobody will understand what you're going through or what you've gone through unless they've been through it themselves. Because that part of that journey that you experienced, not everybody sees that. So my experience was being, I want to say I was like 15. And um, going to this facility in Conway, South Carolina, they... Um, 
they do it's like an intake. It's almost like if you're being intake in a jail, but it's not jail jail. It's not the bars on the windows, but it's a little bit different. So they intake you. They ask you questions. Are you suicidal? Have you had suicidal thoughts? Do you have a plan? You know, what are your mind frame? What are you thinking? Are you taking any drugs? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? So I'm sitting here, um, not knowing really what's going on. They take, uh, they take records of any, uh, physical marks, anything like that, or self-harm. And then they take your clothes. They take your shoes, they take your shoelaces, they take your belt. They take everything, common, normal thing that you would have thought that wouldn't have done no harm, especially when you're 15. You didn't never think that your belt or your shoelaces or anything like that could be used to harm yourself. But they take all that away and give you a pair of scrubs. That first night, they dope you up. Now, it's not so much as far as the dope up that I'm passed out or anything, but they dope you enough to say that, you know what, that you, you, you're floating on cloud nine and you don't know how you got to cloud nine. But that first night was crazy. Because you get to talk to the people, you talk to the doctors, you talk to the nurses, whatever. But then, roughly around nine o'clock, you go in that room, like I said once again, you have nothing on but those scrubs. And you start hearing those locks. Now, I don't know where everybody's life has been as far as when you think about locks and hearing locks. Some of those of us who have been in prison, in real big boy prison, might understand. But when you hear that lock, if you ever get a chance, just shut everything off in your house. Cut the TV off, cut the radios off, and just listen to that deadbolt. Not the door handle lock, but that 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 deadbolt and turn that deadbolt and imagine that piece of that inch and a half worth of metal solid metal clicking on another piece of metal not just once but they're doing this on every single door on that hallway or on that little section there so just click 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 and once again it's dark well, I ain't gonna say it's dark but you're home, you're in your, you're in your room, you're in there by yourself, and you're hearing that over and over and over and over again for a span of anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes, and then it's dead quiet, because there's no TVs, there's no radios, there's no nothing, and then you're just alone with your thoughts. For a while there, it took me a long time. To get over that sound of that lock churning, that metal hitting metal, because it's a it's a unique sound. Like I said, if you've been locked up before, then you know when that steel gate closes, that's a sound that is not replicated easily anywhere else in the world. So you understand that sound. So here it is on fifteen, and I hear that sound. And that first night. Like I said, you're on cloud nine, but then you're not on cloud nine. You're not doped up to you. You can't, you can't understand, but you're not really feeling anything. And even to this day, I can't, I don't function well in dead quiet places. Because my mind is on 24-7. It's like that hamster was going, it's going, it's going. So after that first night, 
the next morning. Now, granted, now, they feed you great. I remember that very well. They fed me very freaking well. I had some of the greatest food of my life in this, what call it like it is, mental institution. But it was great. I, mean, I don't eat eggs, but I had some great eggs there. They had all type of shit. It was great. But then after that first morning, you get up and you start going through these, uh, these classes and you start talking to other people and then you start interacting with the other people, the other kids in that little section, that little dormitory, whatever. And that was really surprising for me. I've always been one that care about other people and how they feel, but when you realize that you ain't the only person in the whole wide world going through something, but then you understand what their backstory was. I had a, there was a girl there that was, yeah, was pregnant with her second child. I want to say it was her second child, maybe it was her first child. This child was going to be born with spina, dif, spina bifida. I want to think I'm saying that right. And she was running away from home, things of that nature. She, she got brought there. There was another young lady there that she was just outwardly violent. She pulled her hair out. She was fighting everybody, cussing everybody out, spitting, doing all this stuff. She was just violent, and nobody knew why. And then there was one dude. He was there just because um he got mad because of his truck, and I'll never forget this because he had a Z Z seventy one truck, and he was mad because the parents were gonna take his truck away. So that was the reason why he ended up in there because he either threatened somebody or did something because they took his truck away. And then, last but not least, there was a little boy there that, at the end of the day, it was one of the things he felt like this boy was never going to see the, the real light of the day. I mean, of course, he's going to be free, he's going to be back with the people, whatever, but he won't never going to be absolutely right. Because, you know, the story goes, as a child, he had to be no more about eight or nine, and he was, um... He was doing not so nice things to the animals in and around his area. I'm not going to go into great detail because that's just, that's just not right. But it's one of the things you realize like, damn, here I am, you know, just not feeling good about myself and feeling like this is some bull. And here it is. You got another little dude half my age. And like I said, you know the story goes. Young age, doing things that doing bad things to animals, you do the math, you see where that goes. So, during that period of time, I realized, I found out one thing that I do, and I do well up into the day. My ability to put pen to pad, the ability to write things out. So I learned how to write, express my feelings, get it out. So, I wouldn't say it was bad, it was good, because I needed to be there. Because at that point in time in my life, I, I just was not ready to live. And then following that up, I got out. And within, say, another month, I want to say within a month, I was back at the same institution. Mainly because it didn't take. The first time did not fully take. Um... Which I understand 
few years later that some things, yeah, it don't take the first time or the second time. Anytime you're dealing with mental health issues, sometimes it is something that has to be processed over and over and over and over again. But yeah, ended it back. By this second time, I had done done the brands on my arms and things of that nature that weren't there the first time. So they they took in a little bit more deeper. The second time was the first time I ever seen somebody strapped down to what I call a dummy board. Uh, dummy board for once ago those who kind of like what the hell are you talking about, D? That dummy board is almost like that same board that they put you on when you are in an accident. That straight board to keep you keep your body flat and safe. But then this time they actually strap you down into that board. Not because you are in danger of moving and breaking your back, but because you are wilding the hell out and they strap you into this. So I saw another young man strapped into this board and it's from your ankles, your legs, your arms, and I think it was a head restraint. And from there, they put you in the room. Now, I've heard jerk jokes before about the whole padded room, but until you actually see a motherfucking padded room in your whole life, when you see with your own two eyes, that shit is not fucking funny. I don't think I've ever made a joke about a padded room ever since then. If I did before, then I really couldn't tell you, but I've never made a joke about that because that shit is too fucking real. It's a room, no bigger than fucking a large walk-in closet, that has pads on the walls and it has a little plexiglass window that somebody walks up and checks on you make sure you ain't passed yourself out you ain't rammed yourself head into the wall and once again that's for the padded walls you don't you don't see that in this walkway and just be like all right cool that's a padded room there's a person in there and he's just in there you know it's like a bounce house no you just don't walk away from that thinking that it's cool so once again I was there I was there for a little bit longer I think I was there for three weeks this time um, because once again it didn't take as they saw they were like oh okay so you was coming you was fresh young and clean the second time you come, you done got brands on your arm then the whole the building thing as far as how to explain how you did those brands did it hurt what were you thinking? And I know some of you might be thinking the same thing. Well, when it comes to self-harm, most people think of, you know, somebody slicing the arm with a razor, which it can be that, it could be other things. Um, but the major thing is, and this goes back to the definition of clinical depression, when that mental anguish, that mental pain is so much more deafening and it hurts your soul so much that the physical pain doesn't it doesn't bother you you do the physical pain just because it takes it takes it eases now mind you what i'm saying here i took a damn hot ass bobby pin that i lit up to a red hot with a fucking lighter and stuck it to my skin just so i wouldn't feel the mental pain that i had let that marinate for a second. Let that really just marinate for a second. 
that right there lets you know that this ain't this ain't just regular oh I stubbed my toe or I didn't get the job. This is some deep stuff because ultimately that's what people do. So after experiencing that and being let go, um, I was put on a lovely, lovely uh, medication. Um, well, I've been on several medications. Just gonna throw it out. I've been on, uh, I've been on Prozac, Paxil, and effects. At that point in time, it was Prozac, Paxil, effects. But see, the thing, another thing is that we we don't talk about is the side effects of those medicines. Paxil, come to find out, was not supposed to be given to people under the age of 18, but drug was so new at that point in time, they said, hell, what's fuck it, we're going to test it out. And that's where another impactful thing is, being that young and giving prescription medicine, telling you it's going to help you, which it did to a certain extent, but then on the flip side of it, when your mom can't afford the medicine, or can't get the medicine in time for you to take it where I actually went through withdrawal symptoms just like I was coming off a heroin binge with the nausea, the sweating, the cramping, the throwing up and it was just hell so at that point after going through all that I swore off medicines I swore it off. I was like, never again. I'm not doing this shit. So for a brief period of time in my life, I didn't do the medicines. I didn't do any counseling. And you might say, damn, D-Money, that's fucking what's up. But no, that's not what's up. Because that's the other part of it. The other part of it is I dug it deep. I did what the world wanted me to do, push on, move on. I did what my family wanted to do, treat it like a faith, push on and move on. And I did. I graduated high school, went to work. All in the whole time that this whole digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And I'm just like, fuck it. Got out of high school, went straight to work, and I think one of the things that may have pushed my, was like almost a balancing act to a simple point, uh, for a certain point, was that I was able to work. Me working kept some things at bay, because I had a focus, I had a job, I would get out there and do my job. And I was young, I was 18, you couldn't tell me anything, I was making money. 725 an hour though, couldn't tell me shit. Well, that would be another conversation for another day about young men working in the world, not understanding shit. But I had a purpose. But at the same time, that purpose drove things back in the background that I just didn't want to deal with. So, fast forwarding, you know... I didn't do any drugs, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't do anything, I just, I went on to get married, have kids, go through a divorce, and fast forward to, uh, fast forward a couple years, and I'm, like I said, divorced dad, I'm living in Florence, South Carolina, I'm living by myself, 
and stuff started creeping back up. I didn't have the kids around to keep me going. I was working, but working was just, I worked in a job. Matter of fact, I worked in a job that most of my day was spent behind a, a supposed bulletproof glass. Uh, and most of the time I spent by myself. So things started creeping back up. And I wouldn't say there was a suicide attempt, but it was close. I walled myself off from the world. And it was one of the things when nobody calls to say, hey, D, how you doing? It just, it played on you. So fast forward, and we're going to jump a little bit. We're just going to go fast forward up into the day. Back in November of 2019, I had one of the worst breakdowns I ever had in my life. It was one of the times I had to admit to myself, I had to get on the phone with somebody that was higher than me and cry my eyes out, a grown ass man, tell him I can't do this. I just can't. I can't. I can't live. I can't move. I need help. And that's one thing that any grown man will tell you that they will never, ever, ever want to have somebody don't want to show that point of their life and being a black man. And I know people want to say, well, why are you, say, why are you focused on so much being a black man? Because that's who I am. But black men, this whole ordeal, ordeal of being under this whole depression, I was always told, pray on it. Pray on it. God's going to take you out of it. Pray, 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 pray. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you any lies. I felt like God, if God loved me like he loved, like he said, like everybody telling me that he does, there ain't no way in the fucking hell he would be putting me through this shit. He would not put me through so much hell that I want to kill myself every other day. So when I heard that, pray, 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 it was like, who the fuck are you to tell me to pray? I've prayed for this so long to go away. Now you tell me to pray again, pray again, pray again, and then you don't want to talk about it. Have I said, hey, I need your help. I'm feeling down. Oh, nah, whatever. You know, take this blunt, smoke it up, or take a drink, or pray on it, or go to church, whatever, whatever. And it's like, you know what? No, y'all don't understand what the fuck I'm going through. And this is why mental health is so much an issue for me because as a black man or just being a man in general, we don't get the opportunity to speak upon this. We're supposed to be the head of the household. We're supposed to be the caretaker, the, the bringing home the fucking bacon. We do all this other shit. We're supposed to be macho about it. We damn, we can get shot in the damn ass and still damn keep it moving. We're supposed to be all this shit because that's what society builds us up to be. But when we get hit with these pressures of the world who the fuck do we go to we yeah, the society has done told us that we are we're, we're the men we're, we're, we're so built up and if we look at doing anything other than what the world wants us to do then we're lame 
And believe me, I've been called a lame-ass motherfucker or lame-ass nigga for many different things. But being lame because we have having issues dealing with shit. So, yeah. That's why it's so damn important to me. Because it's the realization that never again... Well, I be put in a situation where I be made myself be feeling like I'm in a situation that I can't reach out to help, reach out for help, ask for help, cry, yell, scream it, do whatever I got to do to get to that, get that help that I need. And on the flip side, it's my, it's my duty in this world to help other people who have been in the same situation like me. Ben felt like they had nobody else to turn to, nobody else to talk to. And have been told just to pray about it. Don't worry about it. It's in your mind. Da, 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 whatever it is. I'm now in the position to say no. And I have to say this. And you might feel a certain type of way. But, but fuck y'all man. If you got somebody in your life that's going through some shit. And you want to sit here and just be like. Oh it's okay. I, it, it's just something they're going through. Then fuck y'all. Because y'all the same motherfuckers. When something really does happen to that person. You're going to be the first one to say, well, I didn't know. They never, who knew? And I think I spoke on this on a, um, my friend, my dear friend, Miss Charlize's broadcast. Love you, girl. That um, anytime a black man is found hanging in a tree, the first thing we think about is racism. Now, granted, we live in a world that, yes, there are some damn Johnny Rednecks out there who would love to hang my ass up in a goddamn tree. But damn, why that every single time we'll be in the front of the newspaper in the camera saying, no, he would have never done this. He would never commit suicide. He never did it. But I'm going to ask you a question. How many times has this person actually reached out to you? Not saying, not directly and saying, hey, I'm feeling suicidal, but just say, hey, man, I'm, uh, I'm just not feeling too good. I'm not feeling right. Something just, ain't, something just ain't sitting right with me. And you pushed it off or told that man to go to the church when he probably went to the church and the preacher would be like, eh, well, you know what? God's got you. Have a great day. People like that in the world, fuck y'all. And I'll say it again. Fuck y'all. Because people are coming to you just because they're not saying it directly. They're saying it to you. They're giving those signs because you're not trying to pay attention to him. You want to push up and you feel like, no, that's my brother, my husband, my father, my uncle, my best friend, my dude, my homie, whatever the case may be, you're feeling like, no, he can't be doing going through this because that would be considered lame. But this is why it's so important to me. I know I went on the old soapbox there, but I had to get that out there. Of course, being this my first podcast. So this is just a taste of real talk. No chase. I'm going to give it to you. Like it's supposed to be. Like my like my main man, rest in heaven, Bernie Mac, give it to you like a T.I. is. Because it's shit. There ain't no other way to put it. But that's all I got for this evening. I'll just look, keep looking forward to bigger and better things. And hold it down, world. Hold it down. <laughs>